Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to follow along, please do so. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I have told you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, God, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, as I was studying and preparing last week's message, as we looked at the life of Samson, and we kept running across that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. My mind kept getting, being drawn back to our passage that Evan read this morning, here in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And I began asking myself, well, what's, what's different? How does that pertain to us from Samson's experience to our experience? You remember that Samson was a very flawed man uh, in many ways. He allowed his fleshly desires to get the best of him and, and rule his heart. He had a reputation for being a strong man because of the supernatural feats that he accomplished. But in actuality, he was very weak in many aspects. He was weak in character. He was weak in morals. And I would contend that he, was normally, he wasn't normally that strong physically, it was only when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully. God had separated him for himself to be a deliverer for Israel. He was chosen for God's purpose. And that, of course, is another way of saying that he was consecrated or set apart for God. But his heart, his heart wasn't really in it most of the time. And it was only in those moments that the Holy Spirit came down upon him that God was able to use him, or that God did use him. But in the New Testament, God, ch God changed all that with the coming of Jesus. But the change really came when Jesus left. You remember he said in John chapter 16, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, or the Comforter, speaking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And he did, to live in us 
and empower us every moment of our life if we allow him to. We don't have to wait for those glorious moments like Samson did uh, from time to time when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon us powerfully. But we have to allow him to work in us in brokenness and humility. And that's why my mind kept going back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. This is the heart and soul of understanding the process of sanctification, becoming holy, and living out our Christian lives, or as Paul puts it, working out our salvation. This morning we want to look at what that really means. Not only what it means in some kind of abstract form, but we're going to look at another example in Scripture, a person of, uh, that depicts what it looks like when that happens. What is someone like when they walk by the Spirit? Now we've looked at Joshua, we've looked at Gideon, We've looked at Samson last week. Today we're going to look at another character in Scripture that we're going to use as our example, and that's Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's not fair. I mean, he's God, <laughs> second person of the Trinity, for goodness sake. Well, that's true. But there's a nuance in the life of Jesus that I think it's very, that's easy to miss. I want us to look at a number of scriptures this morning um, as we kind of set this all up to show us what walking in the Spirit is all about. In John 17, Jesus prays his famous prayer to the Father, and he's praying on behalf of all who will ever believe in him, which means we are included. He's actually praying for us at that moment as well. And he says down in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So the word of God is a means by which God will answer the prayer of Jesus to sanctify his people, to make his people holy. Then he goes on to say in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. So he parallels his commission with our commission. He was sent in the world, we are sent into the world. And then in verse 19, he says this, listen, and I found this amazing. For, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Jesus is praying here. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. That's a rather shocking statement. It was to me. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> what does that mean? When Jesus says, for their sake, I sanctify myself. See, God knew that we needed a perfect example of sanctification, of being perfectly holy and set apart for God's purpose. And our Lord sanctified himself in every way. But let's just focus on the idea that he was a sanctified person, first of all. He then became the model of sanctification, the example of sanctification. He was holy and innocent and undefiled in every way, never did anything wrong, never violated any command or any expressions of God's will or his law. To sanctify essentially means on one side of the coin to be set apart from sin, and that's exactly what defines Jesus, 
And on the flip side of that same coin, it also means to be set apart for God's purpose. And that also exactly defines Jesus. So he prays that his people will be like him. That just as he sanctified himself, we also will be sanctified. We'll be made to become as much like him as possible. The essential reality of perfect sanctification is this. Perfect love and perfect obedience. The essence of perfect sanctification is perfect love and perfect obedience. Perfect love toward God and perfect conformity to God's will and His Word. And they go hand in hand. It's not one after another. They are together. They work together. So Jesus was sanctified by His love for His Father and His his adherence to the truth as revealed uh, or the, the revealed will of God. And he prays that we will be sanctified and evidence it by our love for the Father and adherence to his word, which is, of course, the revealed word and the will of God. Again, perfect sanctification is perfect obedience out of love to God, to God's holy will as revealed in his word. Now, Please don't misunderstand me. I've been misunderstood before on this. We are not talking about obedience to the law like the Pharisees tried to do day by day. As if being obedient to the law was all there was to pleasing God. That was all outward effort. Nothing changed in the heart. We're talking about such a heart change and such a heart transformation that takes place that our outward expression of that transformation is perfect conformity to Scripture. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You know it well when he said, Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind from the inside. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, it works from inside out, not from outside in. All Scripture is the revealed character of God. So in reality, sanctification is perfect conformity to the character of God, which is manifested perfectly in Jesus Christ. So Jesus had perfect love for the Father, and because he loved the Father in a perfect way, his obedience to his Father was perfect as well. So let's look at what a perfect person looks like. In the fourth chapter of John, Jesus talks about what he does. He says in John 4, verse 34, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Food speaks of the single greatest necessity of life. Without food, we die. The Lord's great necessity in life was to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his will, his work. He was saying, I do only the will of God. I do only the work of God. That's my food. In the fifth chapter and verse 17, he's talking to the Jews who were persuading, excuse me, who were persecuting him. He says, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And this happened to be on the Sabbath day, and you, you remember the situation there. So he's not, not only is he doing God's will and, and obeying his word, but he does the Father's work. 
Then in verse 18 it says, For this reason they, the Pharisees that were listening to Jesus, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus is saying that he does only the will of the Father, only the word of the Father, only the work of the Father, and he does nothing but what the Father is doing, and he does it exactly as the Father does it. This is the epitome of perfect love and consequently perfect obedience conforming to God. Over in verse 30 of that same chapter, it says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will. That's the kicker. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do we hear that? I do not seek my own will. How often does our will get in the way? It does mine from time to time. Perhaps more often than I want to admit. My desires, my way, my thoughts, my druthers. My goodness, if Jesus didn't seek his, only will, his own will, why do we chase after our own? Jesus is saying, whatever it is, I, I don't do anything on my own initiative, including judging. I listen to the voice of God and take all my orders from him and obey him perfectly. Why? Because I love him. Because I love him. Then over in the seventh chapter of John, verse 18, he says, Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal victory or glory, excuse me. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man, and I would add, and or a woman of truth. There is nothing false about him or her. Then over in the eighth chapter, verse 28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Everything Jesus did, it always pleases pleased His Father. It's pretty clear he always did what pleased God. He never did anything that did not please God. He produced out of his own divine perfection perfect love and perfect obedience. That's why he said over in John 14, verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's the internal aspect. I do as the Father commands me. That's the external aspect. Again, loving obedience personifies Perfect sanctification. Jesus said in Matthew, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. That's what comes from the heart and is expressed outwardly. One commentator wrote this, Perfect sanctification is flawless obedience from a heart of love to the will of God, revealed and manifest in Scripture. We then are sanctified in the same way Jesus was by our loving conformity to the will of God, to the word of God, to the work of God. We live to follow his example. That's why we talk about being like Jesus. We don't mean like him in the sense of deity. 
We mean like Him in the sense that we are sanctified, we are holy, we are lovingly obedient to God. We are to be set apart from sin and to God. Now, here's another question. By what power did Jesus love and obey? By what power? Well, that should be obvious, right? I mean, after all, He's God, uh, so His own power. But remember, when he came into the world, he set aside his own prerogatives to use his power. He chose not to use his power. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. In essence, he chose to become weak, just like man. He didn't lose his power. He didn't lose his understanding of things in the future, but he willingly set them aside and took on the form of a servant or a slave to God for the purpose of doing the will of God as an example for us. Here's how it's done. The question then becomes, by what power then did he render this perfect loving obedience? Well, the answer comes to us initially from the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. And we have a prophecy of the coming Messiah, who is none other than, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we read in Isaiah 11. Listen. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, is the father of David. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. The branch is referring to the coming Messiah. From the line of Jesse through David, Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, is referred to as a son of David. And then in verse 2 there in Isaiah 11, it defines a power that will rest on him and in him and through him. Listen, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, the rest of verse 2 kind of describes the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and of might, and the Spirit of knowledge and Spirit of the fear of the Lord. It's that Spirit who will rest upon the Messiah, upon Jesus. And that's the answer to by what power did Jesus love and obey? The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. And those seven attributes of the Holy Spirit, seven, of course, being the perfect number, the number of perfection and completeness, represents the full power of the Holy Spirit which came down upon Jesus and rested upon Him. And if we go toward the end of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 61, there's another familiar messianic prophecy speaking of the coming of Christ, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord, uh, Sovereign Lord is on me, Because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed how? With the Holy Spirit. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim the freedom from the captives, release from the darkness uh, for sinners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. How is Jesus going to do all that? Proclaiming the good news and binding the broken and releasing the prisoners and, and comforting those that need it. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
So the answer to the question is that the sanctification of Jesus was accomplished in him by the work of the Holy Spirit, just as it is accomplished in us. Now, if we go back to the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, where we read in verse 17, after his temptations, you remember that scenario, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee. How? In the power of the Spirit. The Spirit rested upon him in, in the power of the Spirit. He could not have done anything if it hadn't been for the power of the Spirit. He began teaching, and he was praised by all. Then he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, and you remember this, in verse 16, and he stands up to read the passage from Isaiah 61. And he says, reads, excuse me, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? Because they were waiting to see how he was going to interpret that. He began by saying to them, verse 21, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was saying, I am that spirit-filled, spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah prophesied. Everything I do, he was saying, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unlike Samson, who only had those momentary occasions of great power when the Holy Spirit came upon him, Jesus now had perpetual power through the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit rested on him and didn't leave. Listen to what Peter said when he was preaching in Acts chapter 10. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Why? Because, Peter said, God was with him. God was with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the answer to that question, how did Jesus do the will of God, the work of God, and the way that God wanted it? How did he render perfect love toward God and perfect obedience toward God? The answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit because he was walking by the Spirit. Do you know what the wonderful thing about all that is? The very person who empowered the perfect obedience of Christ is the very person that takes up residence in our lives as believers and who rests upon us. We read in 1 John 2, 6, whatever, excuse me, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If you say you live in Christ, if you abide in Christ, you ought to be walking as He walked, right? How did He walk? He walked in the Spirit. He walked by the power of the Spirit. We study the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. How? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we have been given the Holy Spirit, and the power is there. We are being led by the Spirit, just as Jesus was being led by the Spirit. So Paul is saying there in Galatians 5, if you're led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. 
See, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian actually not being led by the Spirit. What there is, however, are Christians in every church who, though having the Spirit and being led by the, by the Spirit, are not following the lead of the Spirit. We have that choice. Is that possible? Absolutely. How? By not taking every thought captive in our minds and making them obedient to God's Word. Purity comes through the truth of God's Word. But it's so easy to listen to the accusatory thoughts towards others that that come into our minds and we allow that ugly head of selfishness to rise up and take over our thought process. And the only way to please God, the only way to truly love and obey Him is to walk in the Spirit that He has so graciously given us. And Jesus was a perfect example, having humbled Himself and become a human being and setting aside all of His divine power. The Holy Spirit came upon Him and rested on Him to empower Him to do God's will. And that's what God has so graciously provided us. And that brings us back to our verse in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. And it's a command. So I say, walk by the Spirit. It's written in the present tense imperative. Keep on walking. Keep on walking. Continually be walking in the Spirit. It implies effort. It implies consistency. It assumes difficulty because he had to command it. And that's, evid- that's evidence that there's going to be resistance, that there's going to be conflict. You see, if we are truly making an effort to walk by the Spirit, the enemy is going to double his effort to get us back to walking in the flesh and doing our own thing. And Paul talks about this in verse 17, "...for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh." Then he delineates what each one looks like. Listen, starting in verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, etc., (laughs) and the like, he says. Horrible things, right? But you know what I often see in churches? It's so easy to spot. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. Which in reality is idolatry because we're coming back to worship self, right? It's a selfishness that comes up. Well, what should be our attitudes? What should be the basis of our thought lives and all of our actions? Well, that's in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can do that as much as you want. In fact, you should be doing that always. That's how we should be walking. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Remember when Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. That should be obvious coming from us. We are to produce that fruit. Let's, let's talk about the word walk just a minute. What does that mean? 
It simply is an order, ordering of your life. It's taking step by step in our Christian life, one step at a time, making our way through life, putting one spiritual foot in front of the other, uh, and doing it consistently. And the Bible talks a lot about walking. It's a huge theme in the New Testament. Spiritual progress isn't a sprint. It's a long lifetime walk. We read in Romans chapter 6 about walking in new life. In Romans 13, walking decently. In Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1, walking worthily. Philippians 3, walking in unity. Ephesians 4, walking in humility. Romans 13, walking in purity. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, walking in contentment. 2 Corinthians 5, walking in faith. Ephesians 2, walking in good works. 2 Thessalonians 3, walking in separation from sin and the world. Ephesians 5, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom. In 3 John, walking in truth. Folks, this is a spirit-filled walking that Paul is telling us that we ought to be doing. And if we're not walking like that, we're not walking by the Spirit. That's how Jesus walked, and that's how he expects us to walk. In summing this up, one author wrote, Walk by putting one spiritual foot in front of the other and do exactly the kind of walking Jesus did, which means conforming your life to the will of the Father, the word of the Father, and the work of the Father. Do what God wants you to do, do what God has told you to do, and do what God himself does. Paul just said, walk in the Spirit, which includes all of that. He expresses it another way in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. If we are filled with the Spirit, we're going to be walking in the Spirit, are we not? In Colossians 3.16, he tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Remember what the word was? That, that was what purified us, sanctified us, gave us that truth. So when we're saturated by the word and the truth of it takes over our life, that's the same as walking in the Spirit. That's the outcome that will take place because the Spirit's desire is to conform us to the Word, which is to, to conform us to Christ. Do we struggle sometimes? I do. Are we struggling with those old sinful desires that come from self? They kind of come up. They creep up sometimes and surprise us. wanting our own way. And Paul commands us to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify desires of the flesh. If we find ourselves really struggling control, to control our thoughts, control our words, to control our actions, we need to take a close look at what our relationship with Christ, where our relationship with Christ is. Have we stepped away from him and kind of taken back the control, wanting to do our own thing? How much time are we actually spending in his word? Remember, we are sanctified, made holy by the truth. Jesus said back there in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. If we're not spending time washing our mind with the truth, that allows Satan wiggle room in our lives to begin working. 
Folks, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have the pattern in the Word of God in Jesus himself, and this is how we are to live. And so we are commanded by Paul in Romans 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. How do we not do that? By walking in the Spirit, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part, any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. This is the Christian life. That's the true Christian experience, walking in the Spirit. And it's not a passive thing. It's not strolling along in our Christian life. I think that too many believers stroll through life. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I beat my body into submission. It's an ongoing process. Step by step, we walk by staying in God's Word. One commentary said this, The Holy Spirit cannot move in us in a direction, excuse me, the Holy Spirit cannot move us in a direction in which we are ignorant. So to be saturated with the Word of God enables the Spirit of God to empower us to triumph over the flesh. So we walk by the Spirit, just as Jesus did. And what a, what a wonderful life of victory and joy there is when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. Jesus is our model of perfect love, rendering perfect obedience to the Father. And if we abide in Him, we ought to be walking as He walked. In a moment, we're going to be singing a song that we perhaps introduced a number of weeks ago, just called I Surrender. I Surrender. And part of it says, here I am, down on my knees again, because we blow it from time to time maybe more often than we want to. Here I am, down on my knees again, surrendering all. Like a rushing wind, Jesus, breathe within. Lord, have your way in me. Like a mighty storm, stir within my soul. Lord, have your way in me. And as the worship team comes and leads us in this song, let that be our prayer. And if, if that's something you're struggling with this morning, just ask, as you even sing these words, let it be your prayer to the Lord, and the Lord will answer that. If you want to come, come down in the front row here and, and either pray or have one of our elders uh, pray with you, we welcome you to come as, as the team uh, leads us in worship. Father, thank you for the perfect example. And it's not unreachable. That's what's amazing. It's not unreachable because the same Spirit that empowered Jesus is the same Spirit that's been given to us with the same power that empowers us. Father, I pray that we will take hold of that power and live in victory by walking in the Spirit, making sure our lives are pure before you, holy before you, uh, uh, forgiven of sin. Father, if there's one here or more that, that are struggling in this, this aspect, it's having a hard time giving it up. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak to them individually. And say, just come to me. Give it up to me. Surrender it. I surrender. And your Holy Spirit is going to come in and purify and forgive and empower and lead us 
in the direction you want us to go day by day. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.